Matthew chapter 21. All right, so Rosaria, Rosaria Butterfield, y'all familiar with her? Uh, she wrote a book called The Secret Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert. Highly recommend that book. Um, she declared herself a lesbian when she was 28 years old, and she's about to finish her Ph.D. in English and Literature and Cultural Studies at Ohio State University. Uh, at the age of 36, when she was tenured at Syracuse University, uh, this was in the English Department and Center of Women's Studies, uh, she specialized in critical theory, which is postmodern theory. Uh, her specialty or her field was queer theory. Uh, this is when deep tectonic plates moved and shifted deep in her soul. She writes, in the normal course of life, questions emerged that exceeded my secular feminist worldview. Those questions sat quietly in the crevices of my mind until I met a most unlikely friend, a Christian pastor. Had a pastor named Ken Smith not shared the gospel with me for years and years, over and over again, not in some used car salesman way, but in an organic, spontaneous, and compassionate way, those questions might still be lodged in the crevices of my mind. And I might never have met the most unlikely of friends, Jesus Christ himself. So Pastor Ken invites her to dinner with he and his wife, and so begins this weird relationship this weird friendship. Uh, it spans for two years of them getting together and learning how to be friends before she ever went to church. Rosaria says, I invited them into my home and into my world. They met my friends. They came to my dinner parties. They saw me function in my real life. They made themselves safe enough for me to be here. Did you catch that? She invited them to her party. I mean, her friends. Can you go to a dinner party with drag queens? Rosaria becomes a Christian, all because a pastor and his wife welcomed her and befriended her. She said, my biggest problem was not homosexuality, it was my unbelief. Well, that was 14 years ago. She's now married to a pastor in our denomination, She's a theologian in her own right. She's written several books. She speaks regularly. She wrote an article for the Gospel Coalition called You Are What and How You Read. She's been the most helpful of anyone I've read on how to, to work through the complex realities of same-sex attraction, the church, and the gospel. One of the things she says in the last article I read is homosexuality is a sin, but so is homophobia. Rosaria was speaking at a church recently and met another Christian woman, and this woman went to a Bible-believing church, which is an evangelical church. She tells Rosaria, I'm in a secret lesbian relationship, and no one in my church knows, and I'm so isolated and so filled with shame. But Rosaria, because of her experience with Pastor Ken and his wife, she just didn't understand that. And she said, well, but why don't you share your struggle with a friend at church? I mean, that's what church is for so they can walk with you through this and pray with you and you guys watch God work on lives together she said Rosaria if people in my church really believe that gay people could be transformed by Christ they wouldn't talk about us or pray about us in the hateful way that they did end quote 
so, Rosaria writes in her book, Christian reader, is that what people say about you when they hear you talk and pray? Do your prayers rise no higher than your prejudice? I think that churches would be a places of greater intimacy and growth in Christ if people stopped lying about what we need, what we fear, where we fail, and how we sin. That's absolutely fascinating. So, I want to welcome you to one of the most unlikely places to meet one of the most unlikely of friends. Please stand for the hearing of God's word. A reading from Matthew 21, verses 12 through 17. And Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. He said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. But when the chief priest and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. And they said to him, do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, yes, have you never read out of the mouth of infants and nursing babes you have prepared praise? And leaving them, he went out of the city to Bethlehem. Bethany and lodged there. The word of the Lord. Please be seated. So Lord, we acknowledge that uh, this um, whole worship service is a divine event. And it's where you break in and it's where you justify and it's where you sanctify and it's where you seek and save and it's where you heal and put back together and it's where you open eyes and work in hearts. It's where you do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. So we ask, we plead, uh, even as we've learned a couple of weeks ago, we, we ask, seek, and knock for grace. And grace is a person. We pray this in your name, amen. All right, let's look at verse 12 together, shall we? And Jesus entered the temple, drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. He said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. What is going on here? Uh, the interpretations are as many as there are commentaries and there are as many as there are opinions. Uh, is this spiritual zeal for pure worship? I mean, is this an attempt to purify the worship of the temple? Uh, is this spiritual anger against TV evangelists or TV temple people, right? God for profit preachers, is that what's going on here? Or is this spiritual trend setting? This is just cool. I mean, this is anti-institutional church. It's a way to attract people, gather a crowd. Is that what's going on here? Or is this spiritual passion against religion, against legalism, against moralism, against Pharisaism, against everything that gets in the way of the grace of God? What's going on here? Well, every Christmas, the staff, the elders, and the deacons, we have a Christmas party in the, at our house. And one of the things we do is we have a white elephant gift exchange. 
but several years ago, even though it was at our house, one year it wasn't. And when that happened, um, it changed the white elephant gift exchange forever. Here's what happened. Up to that point, the white elephant gift exchange had certain rules. How many times you can exchange a gift? Whether the number one person that received had the last steal option or not. And things like certain gifts that were tradition that had to recycle year after year like the fat little Buddha. And somebody had to bring it back at the next year for the Christmas party. Well, this year, controversy broke out. Pandemonium, mayhem, bedlam broke out in the Christmas party. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. The rules went out the window. It was total chaos. People were shouting and screaming how many exchanges, whether number one or the last one had the last steal right, and whether Buddha would return the next year or not. All until the host of the house stood up and changed the folklore of the white elephant gift at the Redeemer Christmas party forever. He said, this is my house. I set the rules. And he set the rules. Peace was restored. Sanity was back. And everybody was drinking eggnog again. Happily, right? Who was this mysterious host that ended the mayhem of the Christmas party? His name is Jim Shandy. He's an elder in the church. Yep. <laughs> I wouldn't clap. I really wouldn't. So what's going on here in Matthew? What's going on in this passage? What's going on in the temple? What's going on here? Jesus is saying, this is my house. Things are about to change. So what's about to change? I mean, why is Jesus saying this is my house? Well, the short answer, the quick answer is there are some things that are going on in the temple, some things that are going on in the church that need to change, that have to change, that aren't right. So this is a story of the most unlikely place to meet one of the most unlikeliest friends. What's not right at church? What's not right at the temple? Verse 12, and Jesus entered the temple. Do you know what the first area is when you enter the temple? What would that be? Those of you that know a little Bible knowledge and Bible trivia. You walk into the temple, you enter the what? The court of the Gentiles. Gentiles or the court of the what? The nations. This is the first and biggest court of the whole temple. You have to walk through it to get to the other four sections of the temple. In each section, the, the potency of holiness gets more concentrated and concentrated until you, you move to the court of women, Jewish women. You move to the court of, of Israel, Jewish men. Then you move into the holy place, which only a, a few priests can enter. And then you move into the holy of holies and only one priest can enter one time of the year. The potency is so thick, it requires a sacrifice. Okay, so Jesus enters the temple, and he enters this about five football field court temple. And this is the only place where non-Jews are allowed in the temple. The only place. The court of the Gentiles is the place where unbelievers are supposed to find God. The court of the Gentiles is where unbelievers, pagans, the unclean, the outcasts, 
the unchurched, the skeptics, the irreligious, the world, the nations, we're supposed to be able to hear about God and his mighty acts. We're supposed to be able to pray and see a God that actually hears, where they would listen and hear about a God of grace who actually loves sinners. And that's why Jesus quotes Isaiah 56 in the midst of this, right? In verse 13, he said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer. Mark adds the rest of it. I don't know why Matthew didn't. He should have. It says, for all the nations, for all the unclean, for all the world, for all the non-Jewish people, for all unbelievers, for all unchurched people. This means in the mind and heart of God, the mission of God has always been married to the worship of God. Do you see that? Right in the design of the temple, worship and mission were in the design of the temple. They were always meant to be together, always kept together, never to be divided. There is no false choice between worship and mission in a church. Some of you know this. I'm always puzzled when someone comes up to me and says, oh, no, are you a missional church? Are you an evangelistic church? Are you a church that reaches those around you? Are you a church that reaches the unchurched? And I just sit there like a deer in the headlights going, uh-huh. And then someone else in the same service or after the same service comes up to me and says, are you a discipleship church? Are you, are you serious about teaching? Are you wanting to develop and train Christian leaders? Are you about reaching the church? And I look at them and I go, uh-huh. There's no false choice. It's not an either or. Even in the design of the temple, worship and mission were married. There is no worship without mission. In the very heart of Old Testament, Israelite worship, God made room for the unbeliever. This is a story about the most unlikely place to meet the most unlikely of friends. What is not right in church? You know, Luther says something, and I read it, and I had to read it again, and then I've read it now probably about ten times. Luther says of Christians and the church, there is no greater sinner than the Christian church. End quote. Okay, now Luther is one of those guys, like if he played football, he'd be one of those crazies that would go down on the kickoff to break the wedge. He's that kind of guy. And then Calvin would come back and make a slide tackle and get all the credit. Luther was a bulldog. Luther was a, he was a fighter. Luther was a, he's someone you needed to start the Reformation. Luther's the guy that walks up to the church that's been believing something for hundreds of years and puts up 95 theses against it. That's Luther. So when Luther says something, you, you kind of go, okay, but you wink at it. You wonder, and, but then you start thinking about it, and you're like, oh, my word, he's right. There's no greater sinner than the Christian church. Look at verse 12 and 13. And Jesus entered the temple. What did he do once he got into church? And he drove out all who sold and bought in the temple and overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. What's not right at church? There's no room for unbelievers at church. There's no room for the unbeliever to hear about God and his mighty acts. There's no room for the unbeliever, as Isaiah says, to pray to a God that actually hears, to be in the process of investigating Yahweh. 
God who loves the nation so much, the biggest space in the whole temple was for them to learn, to hear, to be in process, to be in friendship, to grow and develop in understanding who God is. A safe place, right? But there's no room at church. Because all the merchandising and the sacrificial system was crammed into the court of the Gentiles. The most common interpretation of this passage is Jesus is mad, Jesus is angry because he's angry at the merchandising of the sacrificial system. That can't be true. Because the sacrificial system was set up by God as legitimate. Josephus said on one Passover week, that's one Passover week, 225,000 lambs were bought, sold, and slaughtered for sacrifice. Now, that's not counting calf and cattle. That's not counting pigeons. That's just in one Passover week. So you have to have a sense. People can't carry their animals from all the way to from Jericho. And poor people had to buy pigeons there. There had to be a setup. There had to be a merchandising of the sacrificial system. Not only that, you came from all over the empire. So you had to exchange money into the, the temple money because the temple money was the pure money. So this had to be set up. The problem wasn't that there was a sacrificial system of merchandising set up. The problem was is that it excluded, it excluded the Gentiles, it excluded the nations, it excluded the unbeliever from actually learning and discovering about God. It crowded them out. The house of prayer was now a place filled with commerce and buying and selling. So Jesus, in this passage, what he's actually doing is he's making room for sinners. He's making room for you and me. This is a story about the most unlikely place to meet one of the most unlikely of gods. Right in the middle. We make no room for the unbeliever, or we do, we do verse 12 and 13 when we make church just about us, right? When we make church just about us, we don't have a court of the Gentiles to make church. When we become ingrown and we become comfortable, I, I, I hate this notion of being a nice church. It just makes my stomach turn and do flips. I can't, if someone ever came up to me and said, Jeff, you have such a nice church, or Jeff, this church is such a nice, nice group of people, I, I, I don't know. Um, the church, when we make it a Reformed Country Club, the church, when we make it a a family, like just for our family and not for anyone else to be included into the family. Uh, we exclude the other. We don't have a court of the Gentiles. We've crowded out the court of the Gentiles in church. There's no safe space for someone to investigate and hear and learn and, and grow and who God is and who they are and to hear, to hear ultimate reality being told about them and to discover it for themselves. So the church, is not a, the church is not a bomb shelter. It's an outpost for the kingdom of God. We make no room for the unbeliever. We exclude them when we become Christianized. We become ghettoized. We become insular. We become inward. When we have our own tribal language, we're not intelligible to the, to the folks 
that are trying to figure things out. That's what apologetics is, right? Apologetics is trying to make Christianity intelligible to those in certain beliefs and certain understandings. Well, that that intelligibility comes with a conversation, but it comes with a culture as well, right? When we make no effort to understand the skeptic and listen to the spiritually blind and lame and to try to put ourselves and empathize with where people are at, we make no room for others. We make no room for the unbeliever too. And, and uh, Adam, I'm so glad you mentioned that. When we don't talk about the Christian's ongoing need for forgiveness and ongoing need of sin's presence, an ongoing struggle with a messy life. When we, talk, we don't talk about our ongoing need for continual grace and continual transformation and continual good news, when we don't have a culture like that, we crowd out others because the church no longer becomes a safe place to work out what's really true and what's really going on in someone's life. And we see this going on, right? When the church doesn't make room for folks to have honest, real struggles about the ongoing reality of the flesh and the ongoing reality of needing to be forgiven, the ongoing reality of needing to be renewed and cleansed, when that doesn't happen, people go to dark bar rooms to deal with it. People go to AA and support groups. And social media, other places start taking the place of the church as a safe place to cry for help. We crowd them out. There's no room. We have no court of the Gentiles. And I think that if we were honest, I think we were honest if we were to characterize the way the church is perceived by the world, they would say just that. Church has always been about us and our neighbors. The temple was not just the center of Israel. The temple was the center of the universe. The temple is where heaven and earth met in the holy of holies as God himself stood on earth, not just for Israel, but as Isaiah says, for the nations. The glory of God is supposed and will fill the whole earth, not just one pocket, not just one place. So why do we do this, though? Why don't we make room for others in the church? Why is it so hard for us? What is going on in that dynamic of us crowding others out? Now, notice, I want you to notice that Jesus cleansing the temple is connected to an earlier event that happens right before that, which is his triumphal entry into Jerusalem. Matthew is so interesting is that when you go to Mark, it seemed to be two separate days. So he, he triumphantly enters, then he goes into the temple. But in Matthew, he blends them together so that the two events are actually under one big thematic reason. So Matthew has thematic reasons. He has big idea reasons for connecting the two and not making the distinction in the day, even though the day happens. He has a literary thematic point he wants to make, and that's this. The big idea is that Jesus is the king. This is my house, he says. 
Matthew's point is that when Jesus comes into Jerusalem, he comes in as the king of the universe. And this is his house. One pastor theologian defines sin this way. Sin is the servant putting himself in the place of a king. Sin is the servant putting himself in the place of the king. We become, look at verse 13, a den of robbers. That's what Jesus does for us. Or the church or the temple becomes a den of robbers when the servant tries to rob or steal the place of the king. The reason why we don't make room for others is because the servants have replaced taken the place of the king. The servant wants to be the king, and there's only one king. And he says, this is my house. That's way, 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 way back in the cosmos, and it's way, 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 way back in redemptive history. The very design of the temple is the unbelieving Gentiles have a place to pray sought by me within the church. Worship and mission are married together. Isn't that not what the Apostle Paul says in Corinthians? Just as a side note, he talks about the worship of the Corinthian church and he says the effect of it is that the unbelievers in the congregation will sense God. So how do we change? I mean, how do we become people that make room? Not just we can, we can talk about it, but how do we do that in our hearts? How do we actually in our hearts say, I want to make room. I want to befriend a Rosary Butterfield. Or like Daryl that we saw last week, who befriended a, the Imperial Grand Wizard of the KKK. How do we become those kind of people? How do you become that in your heart and it, and it impacts the way you relate and then relate to other people. The answer, according to this passage, is when we see God himself making room for us. I mean, that's the point of Psalm 8 that's being quoted. Look at verse 16. And Jesus said to them, yes, because they asked, the religious leaders say, hey, are you hearing what the kids are saying about you? Are you hearing what they're saying? And Jesus says, yes. Have you never read out of the mouths of infants and nursing babies you have prepared praise? That's Psalm 8 he's quoting. In Psalm 8, babies, infants, not just children that are like six years old and seven-year-old and eight-year-old. This is the whole span of like infants on their mothers. Babies are praising Yahweh and praising God. And Jesus is saying these children are crying out to me the same way the babies cried out to me in salvation. I am the God of Psalm 8. I am Yahweh. And I made room for you in this temple. religious leaders, Israel, I made room for you. That's why you have a sister. That you don't see 
that I made room for you. And because you don't see that I made room for you, you don't make room for us. Uh, this event, when you read the rest of Matthew and you read all the Gospels account, this is the single event by which the attitude and the actions of the religious leaders change towards Jesus. Some commentary said it's almost like Jesus is taking a test. It's almost like he was saying he always knew that he was going to Jerusalem to die, but he knew what would be the trigger to do it, and the temple was the trigger. They had enough of Jesus. This event leads to his death because the servants want to rob or steal the place that is his. On the cross, Jesus makes room for us in the ultimate temple. So this leads to his death. And while he's dying, he is making room for the ultimate temple of the ultimate being in the presence of God. And you and I have access to the presence of God, not one time of year because of one person that goes in with a rope tied around him just in case they don't make it out alive. That's why the temple curtain was torn in two in the Holy of Holies when Jesus died because it was no longer just in the most concentrated place called the Holy of Holies. That temple was torn because the Holy of Holies was now open to all. Jesus' death became the ultimate temple-rending curtain. And what he does in his death is he drives out your sin. What he does in his death is he overturns all our attempts of servants trying to take the place of the king. Oh, man. This is a story about the most unlikely place to meet one of the most unlikeliest people. 